Welcome to Sophisticated Property Investing, a podcast brought to you by Ethical Property Partners, the experts in sophisticated property investment. Hey there, ladies and gents, and welcome to this edition of the podcast with me, your host, Frank Flegg. In today's podcast, I am going to be speaking to you about professionals, how you should use them, how you should not use them, and most importantly, how you can make sure that you get the benefit you need from them whilst not jeopardizing your deals. And that is really, really important when doing sophisticated property investment deals. Because what I have found with the professionals that I use, and when I'm talking about professionals, I'm talking about conveyancers, I'm talking about architects, I'm talking about your accountant. These guys know their stuff inside out, but what they don't know necessarily is sophisticated property investment. And that is where you have to be the expert. You are the expert of your business. And I'm going to give you some solid examples. And this can even go into structural engineers. And and you think, well, hang on, a structural surveyor that, that, you know, I don't know anything about structural surveying. But actually, I'll give you an example in a few minutes of of a, a point where a structural engineer did miss a really important fact. On looking at the design, I actually saved quite a lot of money just by asking a question. And I think this is the key. When you're working with your mortgage brokers, another example, when you're working with your mortgage brokers, it's really important for you to remain the expert of your business. No one cares about your business as much as you do. And so it's really, really important that you are constantly controlling your business, constantly taking responsibility. Because as soon as you abdicate it and think, well, my mortgage broker's sorting the mortgage out. Well, are they? Have they called this morning to chase? Have they asked the right questions? Have they gone to a lender that um, is aware of A, B, C, D aspect of, of your deal? Because if they haven't done any of that, it's not going to cost them any money, but it could cost you tens of thousands of pounds. Okay, they might lose a couple of grand in fees, but that's not the same as you losing potentially a, a million pound transaction. How do you get the best out of surveyors? Well, I think the first thing is to sit there and have a cold, hard look at yourself and go, whose business is this? Well, it's my business. It's your business. You've got to own your business. And what I mean by that is you have to take ultimate responsibility. These guys give you advice. And if you're sensible, you listen to their advice. But you don't just do what they suggest without critiquing it. And you don't do what they suggest. And notice I'm using the word suggest. My experts, my professionals don't tell me what to do. They make recommendations. And then I challenge those recommendations by saying, just to be sure then, if ABC is the case and XYZ happens, this is still the best product. This is still the best course of action. This is still the best decision that we're making now. And then they might say, oh, no, actually, based on that, I didn't realize that was a priority for you. By the way, experts very rarely tell you that they've made a mistake. But in my experience, they make loads of mistakes, just like we do. 
just like everyone does. Everyone makes mistakes. And so if you are in a situation where you're taking an expert's advice, really, really important to ask them quality questions, listen to their answers, verify the advice they're giving you. So if they are giving you advice, make sure that you understand that advice. Make sure that advice is based on the best information available make sure that you've given them the whole picture make sure that what you've said is what they've heard and this is why um, communicating with professionals in writing is really helpful because a they prefer it normally and b it takes out a lot of ambiguity so when i say negotiate verbally actually liaise with experts predominantly in writing even if you have a conversation initially to put them in the picture and they ask a load of questions it's always a good idea to then put that in writing afterwards let's look at some real examples of where this has been the case where an expert or a professional that i'm paying good money to has needed us to work as a team in order to get the best result. And by the way, the best result for me is the best result for the team, because if I get a fantastic result, then I'm gonna go back to them. I think a really good example of that is my relationship with my architect. So Alan McGowan is my architect. He's been on the podcast before. He's been on the YouTube channel before. He is really good at understanding the fundamentals of architecture. So he understands HMO rules, he understands permitted development, he understands planning much more comprehensively than I do. He is able to do, I'd say probably 80-85% of the decision making on a project. So I can walk him around a project and if I didn't give any input at all, I think he'd come up with a really solid solution. And he charges good money, you know, for, for a project, I might pay him £5,000 for, a, you know, an involved project. But that is money that is repaid to me over and over and over in the profitability of a deal over time. So he then, when we're walking around a, a project, and he'll always want to see it in in person, which I think is a really good way of, of working with an architect, he will then ask me questions about what I want to do, about what the goals are of the project and I will give him my thoughts and I'm very careful not to dominate my professionals so and what I mean by that is I have a really dominant personality on the disc profiling my D is really high and your professional advisors often their D is a much is much lower and the reason for that is and D being red on the on the disc profiling uh, colors so they are often a blue profile they're a um, compliance profile which is attention to detail and if you think about it lawyers architects mortgage brokers now not always there are exceptions but often they are detail focused people that's why they've ended up in those professions so it's really important not to trump their expertise. So it'd be really easy to, you know, swagger in as a high D and go, well, I'm the client. I want it how I want it. This is what we're doing. Go draw it for me. But I don't want that relationship with my architect because I am relying on their input. I'm relying on their expertise. 
but I make sure that they know my preference. I make sure that all my questions are answered. So for example, on a project we're doing at the moment where we're splitting a dwelling into two, I have asked a lot of questions about the HMO regulations in that area because I know they're different in loads of areas. Councils interpret them differently. And so what I've done is I've asked my architect and I always do a fixed fee with my architect because then I know that if other stuff crops up later on, it's all covered in, in that fee. So one of the things was I said, can you confirm, Alan, that our plans for this second dwelling incorporate all of the necessary rules and regulations if we choose to turn it into HMO. And that's really important to me because one of the layers of icing on the cake of that particular deal is turning this property into a five bedroom HMO. And so what he's gone and done is he's gone and made sure that we've got fire doors in place. Well, that's okay. That's not hard. But he's also made sure we've got emergency lighting. But then he's gone and checked that we've got enough cupboard space in the kitchen for a five-bedroom HMO. He's made sure that we've got enough toilets. He's made sure that there's enough sideboards. So often within the HMO rules, they will dictate, and this is often licensing, by the way, but you have to know where to look and he knows where to look. He's gone to the actual licensing department that this property falls into or falls under and he has checked how many linear meters of sideboard we need in the kitchen for a five bedroom HMO. Now he has actually rejigged the kitchen and at this stage where it's a blank room it's very easy to rejig the kitchen it's actually cost us no money but had we put the kitchen in and started operating it as a single AST dwelling and then wanted to change it to a HMO that could have cost us 10 15,000 pounds more to put to retrofit wired smoke alarms add in a toilet change the layout of the kitchen to conform with the regulations etc all of that would be really costly to do after we'd finished the initial build. So really, really important to have that dialogue with your professional advisors. So that's an example of how it's worked really well over the years with my architect. At the moment, I have a transaction going through and I'm trying a new conveyancer. And of course, I'm not going to name this uh, this conveyancer. Um, I have had really good reports of this conveyancer um, in terms of their knowledge, in terms of their responsiveness, in terms of their attitude, in terms of um, just how they do business, really. And that's quite rare to have several independent parties recommending a conveyancer because conveyancers, I think, generally, don't have a great reputation. So if someone takes the time to tell me that someone's really good, then I listen. And if two or three people tell me that, then I'm inclined to try them out. So that's what's happened here. I've perhaps given them, well, I, I think I've given them to more than they can chew. I spoke to them quite openly and said, this is the deal. Here are the heads of terms. Are you up for representing me on it? It was a chunky deal. Legal fees on this are probably £35,000. I should have probably been more cautious. And this is me owning it. This isn't a this is an example of the of using a professional not in a great way and we're always learning I'm big enough and ugly enough to to accept that I make mistakes and I I think that the jury's still out but maybe I made a mistake on this particular instructing this this particular conveyancer but do you know what I made the decision and we're working through it but it's been less smooth than I would have expected and I think what happened was I 
handed over the heads of terms. This conveyancer came back with a plan of how he wanted to structure it. And I didn't challenge it. I treated him like another sophisticated conveyancer that I often use, have used for, for a long time. And I thought to myself, this is what I want to achieve. He came back and said, this is how I think we should do it. And I just said, yes. And I think in retrospect, given that it was a, a new relationship, I, what I should have done is said, okay, why? Why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? Why do you want to do it this way around? Why not just do it in this manner? And the reason was I expected it to be done it's quite a convoluted um, deal it's purchasing below market value over an 11 year period and it's a number of properties I think it should have been done in the contract and this conveyancer recommended we do it with standard contracts for all the properties and then riders or a rider to go alongside all the contracts I'm not sure which was best and quite frankly so long as <laughs> we get the deal over the line I don't care so long as it protects me and protects the vendor. I'm obviously the purchaser in this uh, transaction. However, what happened was the conveyancer struggled to nail the rider down. So he sent it back and it had loads of things in it that didn't work for the deal. I went back and said, look, this aspect doesn't work. This aspect doesn't work. And this aspect doesn't work. And then he came back saying, well, for example, I had agreed with the vendor that a third party, my JV partner, would be a guarantor to the agreement. So we've got a company, my company that I'm sole shareholder of and sole director of, and I'm a guarantor within this rider. But my JV partner, we've agreed, will also be a guarantor to the company and to the agreement. And the conveyancer, this new conveyancer said, well, that your JV partner can't be in, can't guarantee an agreement they're nothing to do with um, unless, and this is the thing, so I can't put her in the rider. And for me, that was putting the problem back onto my plate. So I like to work with professionals and experts that tell me the difficulties of what we're trying to achieve, but then give me the potential solutions. So then, and, and this didn't happen in this case. And there's been two or three things on this one transaction where this has been the case where the, the expert has said, look, legally, Frank, you can't put that into a contract. That's unenforceable. And so what I've had to do is then, and, 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 and left it at that, rather than saying, so in order to achieve what you want, we need to say this and this and this in the contract. But I've had to go back and go and had to say, if we don't put that in the contract, we're going to lose the transaction. We're going to lose the vendor. So what can we do in order to match the actual agreement, the actual contract and rider with the heads of terms. Because if you change the heads of terms too much, you lose the transaction. It looks like you're changing, and rightly so. The vendor would say, you know, well, you're moving the goalposts. This isn't what we agreed. I'm not doing it. There's been a lot more toing and throwing. I think it's quite um, frustrated the conveyancer as well. And I have to take responsibility. You know, maybe I wasn't clear enough. I wonder actually if it's a bit too of a sophisticated transaction for him. I wonder if it's a bit too complicated and I probably should have started with a really bog standard one because, and I've reflected on this, I'm always learning. I'm not 
arrogant enough to go, well, you know, you're rubbish. No, he's a good guy and he's a good convincer. Um, so what's gone wrong? Well, I've done something wrong. So what have I done wrong? Because I, I don't want to have to um, keep coming up with the solutions on every transaction moving forwards. And so what I've looked at is how quickly is he responding to me? Because that's what he was recommended to me based on. Really quick. The guy's awesome. Like same day responses 99% of the time, which is brilliant for a convincer. Booking calls in if we need a call, jumping on Zoom, jumping on WhatsApp group calls with other um, stakeholders, etc. So he's really reliable, really reliable. And so I'm thinking, well, what is the problem then, Frank? Well, the problem is he's not getting the job done in the way that I want him to get the job done. He's not taking my head to terms and turning it into a legally binding agreement that we can exchange contracts on. That, that's the long and short of it. And so I've thought to myself, well, why? He's really willing. He's a really nice guy. He clearly like knows his stuff as a convincer. And I've come to the conclusion that actually he's possibly, I don't know if this is the, the actual fact of the matter, but it's my best guess at the moment. He's probably not done a lot of transactions like these. And he's probably not that experienced. And so what he's doing, he's reverting to really protecting my interests. So his first uh, version of the rider had loads of really onerous terms on the vendor that put me in a really positive position, really protected me, which of course is his job. But when I read it, I was like, oh my goodness, the vendor's never going to sign this. And so I think because perhaps he was out of his depth or he was a bit intimidated by this quite large deal um, and very complicated deal, he's erred on the side of caution and made sure that he's really protecting my interests. But the problem is in doing so, he's going to lose me the deal. So had I just gone, well, you're the professional. If that's what it needs to look like, that's what it needs to look like. And I'd sent it to the other side solicitor. The other side solicitor would have gone to town. They would have told their vendor that they can never do this deal, that this is so onerous, so against their best interest that they have to advise the vendor not to do it. And I would have lost the deal, which is crazy because the vendor wants to do the deal and I want to do the deal. And this is where owning your own business comes into its own. You have to recognize that just because a lawyer has written an agreement doesn't mean that agreement's the best agreement to use. It doesn't mean you go and change it and take out all the, all the bits you don't like, but it means you work as a team with your professionals to get the result that you want. Now, it's taken about 10 days longer than it should have done. Well, taken 10 days longer than I wanted it to. I expected this to take three or four days from instruction, especially the fees we're paying. It's taken probably two weeks, 14 days. And I've had to do some management with the vendor to explain it's taken a bit longer. But yesterday we signed off on it and he sent it. So my conveyancer sent it to the vendor's conveyancer. And I'm confident it's going to be accepted, hopefully without any amendments, because he's now happy. I'm now happy. And by the way, that thing about my JV partner being a guarantor to the agreement, I had to say, look, there must be a way of doing this. How can we do it? It's not possible. Of course it's possible. How do we do it? I said, 
I've got guarantors to tenancy agreements. The guarantor is not party to the agreement. They're not living in the house, but they still guarantee the tenant's performance. I am not my company. So I'm guaranteeing my company's performance. Surely someone else who's willing to guarantee the performance of the company can be added to it. My conveyancer came back with, they can be a guarantor, but it needs to be a separate guarantee. And I got the impression that he didn't want to write that guarantee. And to be fair, a conveyancer writing a guarantee, probably not the best idea because that's more of a corporate law thing to do. And so I'm going to get a corporate lawyer to write the guarantee um, who's comfortable with it, who can who bangs out, out those out day after day. And I've explained to the vendor, I've said, look, when you look at this, the only thing we haven't managed to do in this rider, and obviously he knows it's taken 10 days longer than I wanted it to. What I've said to him is, look, you know that this took a bit more time than expected because it's quite a complicated transaction, but we're there now. However, there was a problem and you could almost hear the silence in his voice, you know, that, oh no, what's the problem? I said, look, we agreed that my JV partner would guarantee this deal. Our conveyancer has said that, and I just told him as, as the conveyancer had said it to me, that only people party to the agreement could guarantee it. So that's me because it's my company. I'm the shareholder. I'm the director. But because she's a third party, what my conveyancer has um, said is that she needs to be a separate guarantor and we'll have a separate guarantee. Um, so I'm going to get that written up separately, but you will have your solicitor will have the rider in the next hour. And he said, brilliant. I'll phone the conveyancer end of today. This was yesterday to get their approval so that we can crack on with the deal. So the vendor knows that we're going to do this as a separate guarantee. He's more than happy because it's the same legal outcome. But if I'd listened to my conveyancer, my professional advisor, I would have gone back to the vendor and said, my business partner can't guarantee it. And he would have thought, oh, I've lost half the security of the deal. Do I still want to do it? And that's what you want to avoid at all costs. You want to avoid losing the deal. There's no point having professional advisors who stop you doing every deal you want to do. That's crazy. If they're so cautious, you don't do any deals. Now, sometimes they might need to stop you doing a deal because it's too risky or there's no way of achieving what you want to achieve. But in my experience, there normally is a way of mitigating your risk, getting it to a point where it's a win-win and then doing the deal, knowing the risks, knowing the upsides and being comfortable with them. And that's the trick. That's the key. The key is to work with your professional advisors to get everything as solid as you possibly can, written up professionally, all the risks as low as you possibly can, get the upside as high as you possibly can, protect your interest, but do the deals. And that's the key, guys. There's no point sitting down with an EPC assessor and the EPC assessor saying, well, you've got to spend 15 grand on this property that's only worth 60 grand and only brings in 400 quid a month. That's crazy. That, that, that's, that, that doesn't make sense. So what you've got to do is you've got to talk to your EPC assessor in this instance and say, right, um, how can I do this? How can I get this up to the level of EPC that I need to without spending more than X? What are my options? And there are always options, but the key is to work with your advisor to work out what those options are. I hope that has helped you. I hope that's given you an insight into how you can work with your professional advisors, with your experts. And until next time. 
Happy investing. Sophisticated Property Investing, a podcast brought to you by Ethical Property Partners, the experts in sophisticated property investment.